Yeah. Okay, you're on. Okay, Bob. Ten peg. Add secure. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. And will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not put to shame. I delight in your commands because I love them. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love. I meditate on your decrees. Good stuff. Okay, we have uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 16. We'll get into it in just a minute. But that's, what's that? Oh, 2 Corinthians, thank you, yeah, I have to, next book, 2 Corinthians 8, 16 is where we're going to start today, let me get turned there and then we'll uh, we'll go through a couple things, we have uh, Winter has asked for, uh, I added her husband Jorge to the salvation list, so we'll continue to pray for all the people on the list, and we're adding on a name there, and then we have um, Siri has a mass in his rectum, and it appears to be cancer, but the biopsy is pending. And so uh, it's been kind of going back and forth with emails with his wife, Jean, for a couple days. And uh, uh, that's the most current update that I have, I believe. And then Cody um, is 12 and is a high-functioning fun high autistic, and he has suicidal thoughts. And she's the, he's the son of a friend of mine, somebody that sends me very uplifting things from day to day. And uh, so she's asked for prayer prayers for her son and then Becky who's had just a, a, a rash of problems is having some back problems now and she's going to be at the doctor's uh, you know one of these people that works on you on uh, on uh, Monday and so we want to keep her in prayer as well and then uh, Lisa. what's that Australia. Lisa in Australia has got some troubles and uh, I, I did not get that email so I'm just going by what Jim said but uh, she, we need to have Lisa in prayer as well and so uh, we got these people that uh, We'll lift up, and then uh, we'll also uh, get started here in just a second, but let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we certainly lift up the people that have been mentioned and uh, difficulties that are being faced, and we would ask that you would intervene and uh, just give comfort to the people that are facing difficulties and healing if it's your will, and sometimes it is, and we know that, and we can trust that, and it's sometimes you have a different path for us, and so we want to certainly pray for these people, and we'll add in Mr. Magnuson, who is unable to attend. And uh, we certainly know that he's going through his own difficulties right now. And we've got uh, Tom with uh, cancer that uh, we'd like to lift him as up, him up as well. And Lord, we just thank you that we can come to you for all of these things and so many others that come to our minds at times. And uh, we can just stop and very quickly say a prayer or we can get on our knees and talk to you for a while and get our own comfort through that as well. And we know that you're there and listening and we thank you for that. And Lord, we also ask that you bless this time together, and we ask that uh, you would just help us to handle this word properly, and if there's something that is incorrect that's stated here tonight, that that would be discovered by the people that attend this class or that hear it later, and that uh, they would not be influenced with something that's incorrect. But Lord, we would pray that's not the case, and we just leave it in your hands. This is your word, and we will do our best to handle it as well as we can. So we thank you, we love you, we praise you for all you do for us, and we do these in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's see here. We have uh, 1 Corinthians 
8, verse 16. But before two we do that, 2 Corinthians 8, 16. That's the second time I've done that because I'm still in 1 Corinthians in my, my Bible. Okay, before we do that, we have some people that have come all the way from Nebraska, just outside of Omaha, to uh, spend the evening with us. And so uh, we've got Dave and Peg Hanna. And so we so much appreciate you guys coming. It's Thursday night Bible class. They won't be here for Sunday, but they, uh, they uh, just blessed my afternoon and I thank you so much for that. They came down a little early and uh, we spent some time together and uh, they're going back right after class to get back to Tampa and they're gonna fly out super early in the morning. But we thank you that you made this uh, effort to come and be with us. And then also I wanna thank um, uh, is Benzer that box back and there from them? what's that? Is that box back there? From no. Omaha States. No. Oh yeah, Omaha <laughs> States. That's right. Uh, I want to thank Benzer and Sandra that uh, they were here for the past week from England, and I had such a good time with the little time I could spend with them. I had such a good time, and uh, so I want to thank them. They left a day ago and they got safely back to England. And before they left, they brought. Uh, I mean, when they came, they brought a bunch of cookies from England for the church, and uh, we have those. Here, okay, we didn't finish them all on Sunday, so I've got them here, and if anybody wants some British cookies, there they are, they'll be here after class, and you can't have them until after class, so don't come up during the middle of the class, but, all right, there we go. Okay, now we're in uh, one, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 16. I thank God, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. Okay, this one says exactly the same thing, just in different wording, I, it, but it says the same. Okay, Paul, always giving thanks where thanks is due, moves his idea, uh, moves from his idea of Christian giving in order to relieve one another's burden to the heartfelt care of Titus for those in Corinth. He thanks God for having directed Titus's heart in this way, stating that he put the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. Now, some older translations say, Put if it was something that, as if it was something that was instilled in Titus in the past. This is not correct. The verb is in the present tense. It is an ongoing action. God put and continued to put earnest care for those in Corinth into Titus's heart. This is important because it indicates that he still had that care for them, and he continued to be burdened for them, as Paul wrote in the letter, which would then be carried by Titus back to them. In arriving, they would read this verse and know that among them stood a person who had not only cared for them in the past, but who continued to do so. Paul makes no direct connection to himself here, but the thought is to be implicitly understood. Just as Paul cared about them, and just as he continued to care about them, so Titus also cared about them. In context, it needs to be remembered that Paul is speaking of the gift which is collected for the saints in Jerusalem. Therefore, the care which is being referred to includes the fact that the Corinthians had promised to make a gift and that this promise needed to be fulfilled. We went through that through the whole class last week. If not, then there would be a stain upon them and upon their name. Therefore, the care of Paul and Titus is that this would not occur, but rather that they would, be com that they would complete the task and receive thanks rather than disapproval. Okay, life application here. If there is a need for God's people, then he determines uh, that he determines will be met. He will ensure that the need is met. It is he who stirs the hearts and directs the events in such times. So be assured that he is overseeing his church in an absolutely perfect way. If things don't turn out as we may hope or expect, we shouldn't become disheartened because the Lord already figured the matter out in accord with his greater plan. 
We get frustrated over something we think isn't being met that should be, and the Lord already knew that, and he has something else he's working on. So let's not get frustrated when things don't go as we think they should in a church or at home or with friends or whatever. The Lord already set everything in motion before he created anything, and he knows the end from the beginning. He's there with us, waiting there for us at the end. So, okay, nine, eight, nine, I'm sorry, 8, 17. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. Okay. Huh, that's completely different. That was 817 you read? Sure was. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. Yeah, yeah, quite different. Okay, it needs to be noted that Paul hasn't yet finished the letter he's writing, and it has not yet been received or read by the Corinthians. And yet, he is writing as if the thing mentioned is accomplished by using the words accepted and went. This is known as an epistolary aorist. His words are intended to reflect the state of things as the letter is read, and thus his thoughts encompass what is not yet transpired. You'll see that a lot in the epistles. In this, he says that Titus not only accepted the exhortation, this indicates that Paul had put forth the idea that Titus would be the one to return to Corinth with the letter. Titus heard Paul's words and responded to them, but there was more. He now says, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. It is as if Titus heard Paul and then said, I had already planned on going. This explains the words of the previous verse, which said, thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. He wasn't just willing to go because he was asked. Instead, he was willing to go because his heart was turned towards the Corinthians in brotherly love. The words in this verse, then, are intended to show the church at Corinth that Titus was both sanctioned by Paul and that he was already willing and eager to go. It is a touching note concerning Titus's zeal for the church in Corinth. Got a life application. If someone is willing to accomplish a task for you or for the church, it is good to send along a note of approval which can say, I vouch for the sincerity of this person. He wanted to help and I fully support him in this matter. In doing so, it may be just what is needed to ensure that the person is accepted by those he is going to visit. A little bit different, but kind of uh, the same idea as we're going to have somebody that's going to the uh, projects with us starting probably this Saturday, and he'll be going for a couple months because he needs to have somebody vouch for him in a certain reason. You know, uh, I won't give the details, but uh, it, I will be doing a letter vouching that he was there and that I vouch for his character during this time. So there you go. We'll have somebody to... The what? Well, that's they don't have to know anything about me. All all they have to know is that I'm doing the letter. Yeah, if they uh, if they uh, want to know my character, they may just send this guy to jail for the rest of his life. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, and I've done that before. We had a person in the projects that lost her children, and uh, that went on for several years. I, they were taken away from her for being an irresponsible mother and. Uh, we continued to go every single week, and it was quite a few years, and her life literally changed around completely. So much so that I, without even being asked, I just voluntarily sent a letter to the state of Florida and said, this person should have her children back. We fully recommend it. We see her every single week. We know the status, and they continued to live with her right up until the day they moved out of the projects. And uh, this person got a job, first job that 
I think anybody in the family had ever had got a job and is probably still working it to this day. So her mother had. Well, that's right. Her mother did as well. So, but they both got a very good job, and uh, it was a real change. So sometimes, you know, just doing a letter for certain reasons helps. And if you're sending somebody a letter of, you know, recommendation and you know whatever is a good thing to do. So there you go. Eight eighteen. And we are sending along, sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. Okay. It says the same thing. They just turned it around backwards. So we'll leave. Yeah. Again, Paul writes in this, again, in this particular verse, Paul writes in the epistolary aorist style, stating that we have sent, even though he is still writing the letter. When they receive the letter, they will also have with them the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. That's Paul's words. It is rather unusual that the brother is not named. Paul seems to rejoice over giving credit right in his letters for those who are willing to work for the sake of the gospel. Scholars debate over who this person is, and the majority of them turn to Luke as the most likely. Others have suggested Titus's brother, Silas, Barnabas, Mark, and Epineadus. Some of those have been adamantly excluded by other scholars. In reasoning why Luke is the correct choice, long notes of explanation are given. None of these can be ascertained with certainty, and some of them make very dubious connections. One reason for selecting Luke is the phrase, in the gospel. As he was the author of one of the four gospels, the connection is made that he is being spoken of. But it is also generally understood that at this point the term gospel did not refer to the written accounts we now call the four gospels. Instead, it was a term speaking of the general plan of salvation spoken by those who spread it. Vincent's word studies gives an impressive possibility for who is being referred to. They base it on a supposed play upon the word praise, which is epineos, and therefore epineatus means praiseworthy. Paul makes the use of the same type of word play in the book of Philemon, where Onesimus is called profitable, which is exactly what his name means. This is seen in Philemon 1, 10 through 11. And we'll wait to read that verse while my mother comes into the church and sits down. But uh, once once she's sitting, we will read Philemon 1, 10 and 11. Okay. Hello, Susan Garrett. We love you. How are you? Um, Philemon 1, 10. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who I have begotten while in my chains, who was once unprofitable, using the same word, to you, but now is profitable to you and me. So there you go. He's making a play on the words. So uh, there you go with that. Okay. And then uh, let's see here. Whoever it was that Paul sent along with Titus, he was a proper choice because of his praise in the gospel, which permeated all of the churches. Life application. There are various mysteries in the Bible which can only be speculated on, but these also can help us stretch our minds and possibly make other conclusions that may never have been made. It is good to not be over, overly zealous in defending that which cannot be defended, but there's nothing wrong with doing our best to try to explain these hidden mysteries. So there you go with that. Just uh, People, sometimes, as I say, I read these commentaries, and you'll get 15 scholars, and they all want to make their own choice on who is being spoken of when nobody actually knows. And some of them get very defensive about it, as if they were sitting there at the table while Paul was writing the letter. And we, we can't do that. But we can say, you know, here's a possibility, and then there's a wordplay on this, or Luke that, or that's fine. But when you start getting dogmatic about things that are not known for certain, that's when you turn around and get bit. That was a pun, dogmatic bit. Okay, here we go. 819. 
Luke. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. Okay, a little different, but not enough to read it again. Okay, this verse explains more about the brother who is praised by all the churches mentioned in the preceding verse. This brother was, as Paul says, was chosen by the churches. The word for choosing him is herotoneo. It specifically means election by a show of hands or chosen by a vote. It is only used one other time in the Bible, which is in Acts 14.23, in the selection of church elders. This brother wasn't only praised by all the churches, but he was also trusted by them as well. Paul notes that his selection was to accompany us as we carry the offering. That's Paul's words. He was doing everything possible to ensure that the offering was not only collected without pressure, but also to make sure that it would be supervised and safeguarded by a group of people who could ensure there was integrity concerning its handling every step of the way. It needs to be remembered that he is still in the process of stirring the Corinthians into action concerning their promise of giving. His words concerning this person are probably twofold then. First, they would not have to worry if the gift could be mishandled in any way because of how it was being collected and conducted to Jerusalem. And secondly, this designated representative, and in fact, all the process, all involved in the process, would be aware of exactly how much was given at each church. If they didn't meet what, would, what they promised, it would reflect negatively on them as a body. As Paul continues, he says that the offering is one that, this is Paul's words, we administer in order to honor the Lord. This we is all-inclusive of every person and each church involved in the gathering. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and those he ministered to were the fruit of his labors. They were mostly Gentiles who were tending to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. Could there be a better way to honor the Lord than to meet the needs of those who were there even during his earthly ministry and who are now in need? Thus, in giving, they would be able to, as Paul says, show our eagerness to help. He's speaking to the Gentiles about being eager to help the Jews. Life application, there are those who are older within the church. They may not be able to attend anymore because of infirmity. And wouldn't it be honoring to the Lord for us to make visits to them in gratitude for their service to the church during their own youth? If we can remember that we meet because of their faithfulness, then it should put our visits and care for them in the proper perspective. If you know what I'm thinking of right now, we have somebody that can't attend the church anymore. Anybody that has time to go visit, I know it would be appreciated. Each time we gather, it is partly a result of their commitment to the very place where we meet. All right? Sorry. Yes. Let me read you two verses. Go ahead. Okay. Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Yep. And he was traveling through Syria and Sicily, strengthening the churches. Okay. I vote on Silas. It could be, but that's in a different direction. Remember, that that's in a different direction. So it that's why scholars didn't choose him. But it it is possible. Now, did I say Silas in there at all? I don't know in the list. So. I don't think yeah, so. because it. Okay, it's, a, it's possible, but he's going in a different direction. So it could be that he went down to Corinth and then over. It may not be. So anyway, but that, that is a good choice, and I'm glad you're paying attention. Last week he was asleep, so the whole, the whole class. Okay, no, he wasn't. Burke, Burke doesn't sleep. Yeah, the vacuuming wears him out. Yeah. Yes. We always have a printout for Mr. Magnus. 
Yes. On Sunday. Yes. Do you have his email? I think I might have his email. I have his email. If you don't, okay, I we'll can send it to you. I Just. Can, I'll, I'll add him. Okay, good. All right. Okay, we're in 820 now. Okay, I'll read 820. He's He's got no, something. No, oh, oh, okay, go ahead. We want to avoid any criticism. Can relate to that right now. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. Okay, that wasn't criticism of you. I was talking to the people up there. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. All right. This verse explains why the person is going along with Titus, who was, Paul says, also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift. It was Paul's explicit intent to avoid any hint of impropriety in the giving of this gift. The word for avoiding this is stello. It is described by Vincent's word studies. The verb, which occurs only here and in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, means to arrange or provide for. As preparation involves a getting together of things, it passes into the meaning of collect, gather, then contract, as the furling of sails. So, to draw back, draw oneself away. Okay, so that's Vincent's word studies. Paul used this particular word to show that he wanted to avoid even the smallest hint that he or anyone else would dream of misusing what had been so faithfully entrusted to their care. The thing he wanted most to do in this was to avoid the chance that, as he says, anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us. The word translated as lavish gift is a word unique in the New Testament. It's hadrotis. It comes from hadras, meaning plumpness. It then gives the idea of lavish generosity. What had already been prepared by those in Macedonia and what was hoped for from those in Corinth was to be a sizable amount. Paul wanted everything concerning its handling to be done with the greatest of care. But Paul's word concerning lavish gift may also be used to continue to encourage the Corinthians on even greater giving. Remember that he has not yet received anything but a promise from them. Now he is mentally preparing them for fulfilling that promise. Life application, gifts to a church or ministry must be handled with the highest care. Any hint of impropriety will cause those not in the church to question Christian honesty. We see that on the TV all the time, or we used to. I don't know if people even watch TV anymore, but whatever. Those in the church may become disheartened and even walk away from the fellowship as well. Pray that those who receive from you will be scrupulous in how they handle what they have received. Did you say that was Stella? Stello, S-T-E-L-L-O. Stella with a little mark meaning it's a hard O. Okay, go ahead. Not Stella. That's a streetcar named Desire is Stella. This is Stello. That's a streetcar named Non-Desire. Anyway, okay, go ahead. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. Okay. Paul's words here are reflected in Romans chapter 12. There he says in verse 17, Repay no one uh, evil for evil. Uh, yes, whereas have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Okay. And then uh, together they find their source in the Greek translation of Proverbs 3, verse 4, which says, And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Paul knew his own conscience, and he was fully aware that God knew it as well. As he said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, we are well known to God. He could easily have collected all of the money, put it in a traveling bag, and headed to Jerusalem without any notion of taking a penny for himself. 
Upon arrival, he would have presented it to the saints there with a clear conscience within himself and before the Lord. However, he was not the only person involved in the process. There were the many who gave and there were those who would receive. If even one person had ill thoughts about how Paul would handle such a gift, then it would taint the entire process. Suppose he was robbed during the journey. Would those who had so faithfully given believe his story? Questions would surely arise in their minds as to what really happened with this immense gift. And so it was his intent to always be providing honorable things, his words. It is a lesson each one of us should carry with us at all times. Others are evaluating us even if we have a clear conscience towards God. For a list of other verses which carry this or a similar idea by Paul, you can refer to, and I'm not going to read them, you can just write them down, Romans 14, 6, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3, 1 Timothy 5, verse 14, 1 Timothy 6, 1, and Titus 2, 8. Life application. If we believe that God is watching us and will hold us accountable for our actions, and if we actually care that this will occur, then we will tend to act in a morally proper manner. But those around us cannot get inside our heads and discern what God can. Therefore, it is right that our external actions are guided by safeguarding principles which will keep others from making unfounded negative deductions about our own actions. Everybody got that? You may be the straightest shooter in the whole world, but somebody else doesn't know you. They don't know what you're thinking. Something happens and they can say, see, there you go. That Christian, he's, he's a bad guy, and he had no intent on that at all. So it's just something to consider there. Okay, let's see here. Um, oops, I still need that. We're in verse 8, 22. You know, it makes sense that he doesn't have to mention them at all. Oh, absolutely. Because they're going to hand him the letter. They're going to hand him the letter. standing right there. Yeah, but he did it with Titus. I mean, he did it on and on and on with Titus, and he does it many times in his epistle, so it just makes it odd that he doesn't yeah, name him there. It just makes it odd. Okay. 22. In addition, we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. Okay, here we go. Again, we have another unnamed brother who is being sent along with Titus and the other unnamed brother, verse 18. It is impossible to definitively identify who this is. The long list of those who have been named by past scholars shows the futility of being dogmatic about it. As I said, you might get bit. Some suggested names have been Tychicus, Apollos, Silas, Timothy, Trophimus, Clement, Epineatus, Luke, Zenus, and Sosthenes. Maybe others have been named as well, but this long list shows that it really could be one of a number of people. Regardless of who it is, he often proved diligent in many things. As he was known for this, he would certainly be a good choice for such a delicate mission. And he certainly wanted to go as well. The note that he was now much more diligent shows that he was actually excited about the challenge and was ready to get on with it. Maybe he'd never been down to Jerusalem and he wanted to see the place. I don't know. Then the reason for his diligence was because of the great confidence which we have in you. The confidence of Paul and the others concerning the Corinthians was to step up and fulfill the promise they previously made, which spurred this brother on to joining the task. He was ready to travel there and then all the way to Jerusalem, carrying this precious gift to the saints in need. In this verse are two of only three times that the word spudaios, or diligent, is used in the Bible. The other use was in verse 17, 
Charles Ellicott notes that it implies what we must almost call the business-like side of the Christian type of character, and it is therefore employed with special fitness here. Okay, life application. Some people's names are left out of the biblical record, and yet they have had a great impact on what occurred in the narrative. The words about them are also inspiring and praiseworthy. If you are doing a service for the Lord and yet have been unnamed and not recognized, don't be disheartened. The same Lord who withheld the names of these faithful people from his superior word knows everything you have done and are doing for him. There's a person in the Old Testament. I love when I come to the story about uh, what's the guy, Naaman the Syrian, that went down to the river seven times to get washed and cleansed of his, uh, his uh, leprosy. Well, how did he get down to the prophet in the first place? The little girl. The little girl. She was taken captive from Israel. She's uh, basically a slave in another country, and yet she cared enough for the master that she served under to say, oh, there's a prophet in Israel that can uh, take care of this problem, this leprosy of his. And she'd never named, but there she is, one of the heroes in the Bible. And uh, we've got a, another, uh, we've got a hero at the church who does things without wanting to be recognized, and yet he did it again this week as he, uh, as he's done for the past weeks. On Thursday night, he makes a little graphic for the uh, uh, Bible studies, and today's graphic was a picture of Duck Dynasty. They all have nice big beards, and they're all looking at a TV, and you can't see what they're looking at. And then the next slide shows them all looking at the superior word, and they're all standing there drooling because of the guy with the beard and the superior word. And it's got a couple other nice little things. Jim's in there, and Sergio's in there, and, uh, and it's... Poor it's Poor Rhoda. Yeah, it's, it's a very special photo, but he's doing that without even wanting to be recognized, but I thought I'd I'd recognize him here for great another a great name. photo. Was it? Oh, Wade Nolan. Yes, Wade Nolan. I, I didn't even give his name. I, I'm talking about him. I thought I said Wade, and then you just reminded me I never got to that, but very much appreciated. Okay, so here we are in 823. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for, the, as for other brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. Okay, good deal there. Uh, let's see here. This one says glory to Christ instead of honor. The, word anyone uh, the words anyone inquires, as Paul's words, are inserted by the translators, and they may or may not convey the proper sense of what is being intended. The Greek, in the Greek, the idea here could be more clearly stated as to Titus or regarding Titus. In other words, as there were factions at Corinth, which is addressed in detail in 1 Corinthians, some of the church might question Titus's authority to conduct the affairs that he will carry on. It also could be that Paul had heaped such praise upon the others that are going with Titus, as is noted in verses 18 and 22, that he felt it was necessary to also show that Titus has the same level of approval and is just as trustworthy as they are noted to be. And so, to bolster Titus in the eyes of those in Corinth, he says that he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. As a partner, Titus is placed on an equal footing with Paul, at least in the labors which they conduct. As a fellow worker, Titus is shown to have the same end goal for the labors with which they labored. They are, in essence, a harmonious team concerning the church at Corinth. Continuing on, he says, with Paul's words, or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. If questions were to arise concerning the other brethren, Paul lets them know that they are speaking on behalf of the churches and are not working independently of them. 
The word here for messengers is from the Greek word meaning apostles. In this case, it is used in a non-technical sense of delegates. As there is no article in front of the word apostles, it indicates that they are not of the chosen apostles who are delegates of Christ, but rather are apostles in a lower sense of those who are delegates for the churches. Apostle, I've said this before, it simply means sent one. It is the person or body that sends them of which they are identified. So if the superior word was to send messengers to Papua New Guinea, they would be apostles of the superior word. You could not say they're apostles in the sense, the technical sense of the Bible. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ because the people that were sent by Jesus Christ are apostles. They're all dead and the apostolic age is over. It does not continue on with a pope. It does not continue on with a right of succession in any way, shape, or form. The apostolic age ended with the last apostle. That was John, probably. It was certainly John as far as the writing of the Bible is concerned. So that's over, but this is delegates for the churches would be the sense here. Paul's final words, the glory of Christ, show that these men had such favorable reputations and were to be considered so trustworthy that they actually displayed in themselves the glory of Christ. They brought such honor to the churches that they reflected his glory in every way. Life application, as Paul has shown consistently in his words, it is right and it is proper to acknowledge those who minister on behalf of others, not just in words of praise, but in words of trust. We can say, this person is a really nice guy, and yet not tell the entire story that needs to be told. By adding in, this person can be fully trusted they are elevated to an entirely new level in the eyes of the recipients of those words. Be ready to support those who have shown themselves faithful in this way. Okay, 824. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. Okay, wow, this is completely backwards. It, Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. They just completely turned it around. Okay, Paul finishes this chapter with his appeal to the Corinthians to put their words into action. He begins with, therefore. This actually covers the entire discourse on the matter to this point as he weaves together his words for them to consider. His words, show to them, are speaking specifically of Titus and the other two who will be coming to them for the very purpose of gathering up the gift, gift that they had promised by the Corinthians. Next, he says, and before the churches, which probably is referring specifically to the Macedonian churches, he has mentioned in detail during this chapter. This would include Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. It may also include other churches that Paul had boasted to, boasted to concerning the promised gift from those at Corinth. And remember now, Corinth is the rich church. That's where the money is. These other churches are poor, and yet they gave a great deal of money out of their own poverty, okay? So he is continuing on this, the same line of thought that he has been going all along. He's stimulating them to give what they had promised, because if not, all of those other churches are going to feel resentment. It's not an if. It will be the case, because they gave out of their poverty, and these people can't even give out of their wealth. So there you go with that. In these two separate appeals... It is clearly evident that Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to save themselves from an embarrassing situation. If their actions did not meet their words, there would only be a sense of dishonor concerning them in the eyes of those who gave so willingly, even out of their poverty. 
In order for this to not happen, he mentions to them that this gift would show the proof of your love. <clears throat> this thought takes us all the way back to verse 8. I speak not by commandment, but in t testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Verse 8 was placed between the verses concerning the Macedonians and the verse concerning what Christ did in the giving of himself. These were diligent in proving their love through action. Now it was the Corinthians' chance to do the same. Along with that, there was the matter which was our boasting on your behalf. So Paul's even looking to save face among them as well. They had spoken. Paul and the others had accepted their words at face value, and boasting of what was coming from them went out. In the case of boasting to Titus, it was something that would now become either proven true or proven false. If false, he would be embarrassed to return with such a paltry gift. His boasting to Titus is recorded back in 714. Let me read that to you. It says, um, For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. In his boasting to the Macedonians, it led to their giving in an immense way. If his words proved false, then those in Macedonia would naturally feel used and hurt. This boasting to the Macedonians was mentioned back in verse 8-2, where it says that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Life application, we use the term, this is where the rubber meets the road, that's correct, to indicate that specific moment when something should, which should happen, actually comes about. If it doesn't, then there will be negative consequences. In the case of a car, it may lose traction or it may get stalled out. Either way, disaster could result. When we make promises, they are only realized when the rubber meets the road. And so let us have plenty of tread on our tires as we fulfill what we have spoken with our lips. 9-1, yes, please. Sorry about that. I'm cracking my back here. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints. Okay, is that where it ends? That's where it ends. Okay, now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. I guess they just turned it around again. Okay, that's why I, I, my brain wasn't working. Okay, Paul, after having brought up the subject of Titus and his traveling companions, returns to the subject of the collection of the gift, which he had been speaking of. His words now concerning the ministering to the saints are speaking of this very thing. The saints are those saints in Jerusalem who are in need. And concerning this gift, he says that it is superfluous for me to write to you. He is tactfully avoiding a possibility of hurting their feelings by directly reminding them of their obligation. Instead, the word superfluous is used to let them feel that he knows they have committed to give and will also fulfill in the collection of the gift. Should he not say that the, his words were superfluous, they may feel he doubted their intent to fulfill the promise that was previously made. So he's being tactful all the way through this. This will become evident in the next verse. Paul is masterfully writing them to remind them of what they had promised, and yet he is claiming that no reminder is necessary. He understands this type of approach is both wise and necessary. The promise has faded in the minds of the Corinthians, and he is bringing it back to a prominent place now that the time for the collection has arrived. Verse uh, life application, to make a vow and not fulfill it is to lie concerning the vow. 
Lying is not just a command found in the law of Moses, which has now been set aside in Christ. Lying is forbidden in the New Testament as well, such as in Colossians 3, verse 9. Okay, let me read that to you, seeing as how I'm citing it. Colossians 3, verse 9. It says, uh, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Think Think, uh, yes, I think your words through carefully at all times and be sure to perform what your lips have spoken. If you cannot, then do, uh, if you cannot, then do so. I've got something wrong in this sentence. I'm just having a terrible time even trying to read it. But then be sure to fully explain to the one whom you have made the promise to why you must retract your words. In other words, if you make a vow, fulfill your vow. If you can't fulfill your vow, at least tell somebody why you can't do so okay that's the right way to be do yes please for i know your eagerness to help and i have been boasting about it to the macedonians telling them since last year you in achaia were ready to give and your enthusiasm enthusiasm had stirred most of them to action okay let's see here nine two continuing with his thoughts on the gathering and final collection of the gift from those in Corinth, Paul says first that I know your willingness. He was there personally and had heard the words of promise which the Corinthians had made, their desire to give, and the excitement about doing so. And because of this, when he was in Macedonia, he boasted on behalf of those in Corinth concerning their zeal. His words, this is Paul's words, about which I boast of you, are in the present tense. And it shows that he was still in Macedonia and still making the boast to inspire them on in their giving as well. It is likely that this letter is being written from Philippi. The boast of which he speaks is found in verse 24 of the previous chapter. It is a boast which Paul is praying is still applicable, hoping that their zeal has not died down. Okay, of interest is that he says Ahia was ready a year ago. His words to those in Macedonia show that those in Achaia had already begun preparing for this gift. In his first epistle, he even gave instructions on how to best do it. That's found in 1 Corinthians 16, where he says, verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So he's given all the instructions necessary, and he's just, he's, you can tell how hopeful he is that this actually pans out the way that they had promised it would, because he's very concerned that if it doesn't, a lot of people are going to be embarrassed, unhappy, and there's going to be a shame of face. The term Achaia encompasses the region of Greece where Corinth was the capital. Therefore, this is indicating that there were more churches than just the one in Corinth that had promised to give. Romans 16 verse 1 shows that there was a church in Sanhria. Paul's boasting included any and all of the churches of which Corinth would have been the most prominent. And because of this boasting, he notes that your zeal has stirred up the majority. It would be a shame if the boast proved to be unfounded. As a way of hinting at this, the word for stirred up has been, uh, the word for stirred up is used in a good sense. In essence, it means to motivate. However, it could be used in a negative sense, such as in Colossians 3 verse 21. The same word, Colossians 3 verse 21 says, 
Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So it can be positive or negative. As the word could go either way, he is probably using it to show that at this time, their zeal had a positive effect. However, if they were to delay further or fail to come through with their promise, it would turn from a happy stirring to a negative one. Life application, delaying a promise can turn into an unhappy thing. We should keep from making promises that we cannot fulfill, or we should explain that the promise would be fulfilled by a certain time. Don't let things fester in the heart of the one who received the promise. Okay, 9-3. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this manner should not prove hollow, but that you may be that you may be ready as I said you would be. Okay, 9-3. Paul begins this verse with the word yet in this translation. This is a subtle hint of what he will say next. He had just mentioned his boasting concerning the church at Corinth to the Macedonians, telling them about the zeal he witnessed in there, there in regards to the gift. And despite this zeal, he felt it prudent to ensure follow-up to the promise by saying, I have sent the brethren. These are Titus and the other two unnamed brothers mentioned already twice, implicitly and explicitly, in verses 8.22 and 8.23. The intent, at least in part, is to avoid the personal embarrassment of Paul as well as of those in Corinth. It was his plan that the gift's presentation not fall short of the promise. Lest our boasting, this is Paul's words, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in that respect. We can imagine the embarrassed stares all around should those in Corinth not provide as he had said they would. Each party would have secret thoughts of being duped or of having been failed in their commitment. In the end, nobody would be left untouched by the failure. And because of this, he was doing his very, very best to ensure that those in Corinth would be ready. Life application, which is more embarrassing? To fail to meet a promise or to be the one who reminds the person of the promise they made? Both can be cumbersome and can be difficult, but if a promise is made which will affect numerous parties, it is certainly best to ensure that the promise is fulfilled. In such a case, we can come to this passage in 2 Corinthians and see how Paul has handled this very delicate matter. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, <laughs> would be ashamed of having been so confident. Do you think this is on Paul's mind? I mean, we've gone through at least 25 verses where he just he's trying every possible way of getting this across to them that you have to fulfill what you've said. And it may be that they fulfilled, they promised so much that he's scared that they just, they've gone out and had parties throughout the year and didn't save what they were promising to save. And whatever it is, you can see the concern on his mind. Paul continues the thought of the previous verse concerning his boasting and what the Corinthians were going to do in their gift giving. The term Macedonians leaves off any article, and therefore it is as if Paul is conducting a competition between the two groups of people, pitting them one against another to spur them on to the greatest gift possible. Charles Ellicott and others think that this may mean that the two unnamed brothers of chapter 8 are in fact Macedonians. Thus, they would be able to report on this competition between the two. Then if they're showing up in Corinth, then you've got a real reason to not be embarrassed because you've got the Macedonians who did give standing right there. However, if they are coming with Titus, who is carrying Paul's letters, then this doesn't fit. Paul will only travel to Corinth after the letters received. It is whoever travels with Paul, not with Titus, who is being referred to. As he says, they were to come with him. 
when they traveled together, he didn't want them to find those in Corinth unprepared. Paul will be traveling with the Macedonians who will be evaluating the words he spoke to them. If the gift of Corinth didn't match his boasting, it would be embarrassing. This is exactly what he has been trying to avoid. This would be especially so with the Corinthians who had done the boasting. In order to get them on the ball, he says, not to mention you. Together, all parties would find some sort of shame in the events which had transpired. The words confident boasting indicate that which is below something else, like a foundation or the ground. It is what provides stability and steadfastness. If the gift was not ready, the sure words of those in Corinth and the boasting of Paul concerning them would seem as if they lacked any true foundation at all. So he's using these special words, trying to get them to think it through. Life application, words without a firm foundation and something to back them up are just wasted breath. Be sure to follow up on what you speak, as Paul is doing in this letter, to ensure that your words are found true and reliable. Okay, I will make a statement right now. I will make a promise to this church that on Sunday, we will start the book of Deuteronomy. Now, we'll see if I can fulfill that promise on Sunday, but that's my promise to you. We'll see if I can back it up with actions on Sunday, okay? If so, then you will hear the first of the Deuteronomy sermons. It's Deuteronomy 1 through 4. It's entitled, An 11 Days Journey. I'm so excited that we're going into the book of Deuteronomy. I can't wait. What's that? Four verses. Yeah, well, you gotta, we, we've got to have an introduction and then four verses. Next week, though, the whole sermon is only three verses. So, yeah, it's, we're starting to pare it down. It'll take us a while to get through Deuteronomy. The week after that, we're only doing one word of the fifth verse. No, I'm kidding. Way kidding. Yeah, no. I, I just wanted to see her face, and it worked. It did. It worked. Sermon out to. Yeah. I'm so excited to get involved with Deuteronomy and so looking forward to the next two and a half years. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> two and a half, three, five, ten years. Yeah, no, it'll go pretty quickly, I think, after the first 33 chapters. Yeah. We'll get to chapter 34 and we'll just slide right through it. Yeah. Okay. A nine five. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance to finish the arrangements for this generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready. As a generous gift, not as one grudgingly, grudgingly given. Yeah, this one says a grudging obligation. Okay, where does that fit in with giving in general? Remember the oh, verse where he says about you? You have a glad heart and not grudgingly. Okay, he is fulfilling his own words by saying that here. And that's why I speak against tithing so much. I mean, if people want to tithe, I don't care. If they want to give 50% to a church, give whatever you want. That's between you and the church you attend. But if people want to give a lot, that's fine. If they want to give a set amount, that's fine. But nobody should ever feel like they are giving grudgingly. If somebody says, you need to give for this and this and this and start shaming them, they need to, I, I, they need to either talk to their pastor or they need to leave that church. I just believe that because nobody should be told what they should give in a New Testament context, ever. Church, yep. One Sunday, they bring in somebody that nobody knew, and that was his job. Just to get people to give money. Yep. Wow, see? That, yep. Yeah, no, that can't be. Yeah, I mean, that's complete violation of what it says here and what Paul says elsewhere. Okay. Yeah, you gotta wake, that's right, got to wake them up. Okay, the comments for verse 5. In this verse, Paul uses the idea of before three times. 
go to you ahead of time, your generous gifts beforehand, and previously promised. All three. This triple repetition demonstrates that he was considerably involved in this process in order to avoid any hint that he had embellished in his words to the Macedonians or that he could not trust the previous promises of the Corinthians. His intent was to have everything ready before those from Macedonia arrived. Should they find things were not as promised, everyone involved in the process would have some sort of bad feelings towards the collection of this gift. And for this reason, Paul thought it necessary, his words, to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time. Actually, Titus was more than willing and eager to go, but Paul also wanted the others to go with him to ensure that everything was handled in a proper manner. This is obviously a large gift, and so more than one delegate was proper. His sending of them then was to prepare, Paul's words, prepare your generous gift beforehand. As noted, having it ready before his arrival with the Macedonians was of the highest importance to him. His stress in this verse cannot be underestimated, especially with the next words, which say, which you had previously promised. They are spoken of, they had spoken in promise, and Paul is reminding them of this. If this were not true, then he could not have written that they had promised. Everybody get it? He said, write in this letter, you promised. And if they didn't promise, they'd say, well, that's not true. He couldn't have written it. So it's obviously true. They could not have, uh, he, they could not have not promised. And so his words are a reminder to them of this. Having said that, the reminder is necessary because of his final words, which say that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not a grudging obligation. Should he arrive and the gift not be ready, he could rightly state in front of all of the visiting guests, you promised this gift, and others were motivated by your promise. Now you are reneging on the very promise which prompted them to give even out of their means. You can see how bad this could get. Should he speak in such a manner, they would be shamed into giving out of grudging obligation. When he and the money departed for Jerusalem, there would be shame rather than honor left behind for them to wallow in. Mine says boastful. They made a boast. Boast, yeah, they were, they were boasting. So they had an amount that they had told him. Oh, I'm sure of it. Yeah. yeah, they said, oh, we'll give this much. And they heard about the Macedonians and said, oh, we'll match that. Oh, or whatever, you know. Yeah, I, absolutely, I agree with that completely. Charlie, yes. dangerous with this amount of money? I have no idea. For these people. Well, that's why they're sending several people with them. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I don't know what it was like traveling back then. You know, they probably, I don't know what they would have done. I, I have no idea, but I'm sure it would have had dangers, especially once you get into Israel and, you know, there's a lot of empty land and you're getting off a boat and you got to travel how far? I mean, you, I can't even imagine. 40 miles. Yeah. Yeah, from Tel Aviv down to Jerusalem and it's all going to be in, you know, open country. I, I can't even imagine, but yeah, that's why they're sending yeah, they several people. And, and everything else to get. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, just imagine if it's a lot of money and it all got, but obviously it made it. We know that, but mm -hmm. I can't even imagine. They yeah. said to keep off of the road to Jericho. Yeah, keep off the road to Jericho. Yeah, I can tell you that with uh, confidence. Okay, the specificity in this verse is a clear and evident indication of Paul's true heart for every part of the process to be smooth honorable, and edifying for all involved. Life application, hindsight is twenty twenty, but with careful thought and contemplation, it is not always necessary to say, 
Oh, I wish I had. Instead, by taking time to think important issues through, pitfalls can be avoided through tact and diplomacy, which is what Paul is doing. Okay, 9-6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Okay, the next verse is the one that I was thinking, and we'll be there in a minute, yeah. but we'll do six first. The verse here closely matches Galatians chapter 6. Let me take you there really quick. I can't wait to get into Galatians. I just love that book. All right, Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who slows, sows to his flesh will reap of the flesh, will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So you can see they're rather close. <laughs> However, there are marked differences in the intent behind the two as well. In this verse, Paul gives a push for graciously abundant giving. It is a thought which builds upon the entire discourse concerning giving. Not only were they to not give grudgingly, verse 5, but they should give in an exceptional way. In explanation, then, he says, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Sowing is one when, when one puts seed in the ground in the planting of crops. If someone puts a handful of grain into the ground on a large field, they won't be reaping very much at harvest time. However, if one takes the chance, sows a large amount of seed of grain, or a large amount of grain which could otherwise be eaten or sold for money, and tends to the field, they would probably have a far different result. As noted, he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. John Chrysostom says, he calls it sowing in order that we may learn by the figure of the harvest that in giving we receive more than we give. This is generally true. There is, of course, no guarantee that a field will yield a thing. Drought, infestations, etc. may destroy the entire crop. But one cannot reap bountifully unless they first sow bountifully. That's a, that's a given. Okay, it's not a given that you're going to reap bountifully, but you cannot reap bountifully unless you sow bountifully. And the word translated here as bountifully literally means with blessings. In this, we can see that there is more than just a material reaping at the harvest. There is also the satisfaction which accompanies the reaping. Blessings are what come to us and that which we find satisfaction. A person may simply be blessed by working in the cool breeze under the blue sky. But unless one goes out to reap, this part of the blessing will be missed. However, the general principle here is a return on an investment by an increase of the same thing which was invested. A couple Proverbs follow this same broad thought. The first one is in Proverbs chapter 11, which we'll go there really quickly. Psalms and the Proverbs, and then we got Proverbs 11, 24. And 25 say, there is one who scatters yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. And then in Proverbs 19, it says in verse 11, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. I'm sorry I put the wrong verse there because that doesn't match at all. Let me go back to 1811 and see what it says. Yes, um, the rich man's wealth is in a strong city and like a high wall is his own esteem. You can see I'm always putting one thing and 
uh, one chapter begins the thing and then another one ends it and I'm always putting the wrong one so there you go but uh, it was uh, Proverbs 11 24 and 25 there you go okay without taking this to an unintended extreme which modern word of faith preachers do this is a general principle of increase. And of course, what do they do? They always go back to Malachi chapter 4, I think it is. Open the and, yeah, open the windows of heaven. And, uh, you know, if you give to me, you're going to be rich as you can be, right? And that's what they say, okay? And they take that out of the context, which is Old Testament. It has nothing to do with the church. And secondly, it's speaking to a body of people called Israel. It's not speaking to one individual. If one individual in Israel was to do what it says in Malachi 4, it doesn't mean that it's going to rain all over Israel or just rain on his land and nobody else's. They are a corporate group of people. If they corporately come together as a corporate group and they do what the Lord says, they will be blessed. That goes all the way back to Leviticus 16 with the blessings and the curses. And guess what? The book of Deuteronomy also has that as well. Anybody know the chapter? 28. Good job. I knew Burke would get it. Deuteronomy 28. It mirrors the words of Leviticus 16. It's not exact, but it gives the same general sentiment, adds some, and it changes some. But Leviticus 26 is spoken how? How is it termed when it says, this will happen, this will happen, it is, I will make this, I will do that. So it's in the first person, whereas in Deuteronomy 28, it is in the third person, the Lord will. So Moses is saying, if you don't pay attention, what he said in Leviticus 26 is going to happen. And guess what happened? It happened, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, I, I have been accused in the past of uh, being an anti-Semite because I've said what has happened to the Jews for the past 2,000 years is their own fault. And people don't like hearing that. But whose fault is it? It says right there in Leviticus 26, if you obey, you will be blessed. And if you don't, you will be cursed. And not only does it say that, it says what he will do. And all you need to do is follow the history of the Jewish people and exactly what has happened to them all the way through their history would not have happened if they had simply accepted the Lord in his provision. And when they rejected Christ, the curses came the second time. This is their own fault. Now, I'm not saying that we don't deserve it as well. We do, every single one of us. That's not any, I don't know anybody that supports Israel more than Charlie Garrett. I just do it differently than other people do. Some people just go hog wild and they support him completely, regardless of the perverse nature of their government decisions. We can't do that. We have to take Israel and say, God has placed them back in the land for his purposes, and we support them because of that. Not because of their government decisions, not because of their LGBT agenda, etc., etc. That's not why we support Israel. We support Israel because this word tells us to. It tells us that we are to support them because God has now favored them, despite themselves. Okay? The what? Yes, I'll punish you seven times over. And that's exactly what happened. Ezekiel chapter 4, he goes through the calculation. He says, if you don't listen the first time in Leviticus uh, 26, I'll punish you seven times over. Multiply it. It comes out exactly 2,520 years, and it brings them right to 14 May of 1948. And Jerusalem, having fallen 19 years later, was recaptured 19 years later, June 6, 1967. Yeah, so it, the Lord was very precise in he, how he handled these people and how he handled the prophecies in the Old Testament to the day, literally to the day in their fulfillment. So because the Lord has done that, I support them, but not because of their actions. Go read Ezekiel 26, 36, 22, and you'll know what I'm talking about. So if, if they claim you're an anti-Semite, that would also 
Oh, yeah, you know, uh, you, you could say that, too. You could say, yeah, the Lord punished them, and they didn't deserve it, and therefore God doesn't love them. That's, that's the farthest thing from the truth, okay? And it's the same thing with us. But this that's the whole point takes us back to what I was saying. I got way off on a tangent there, but don't take the Old Testament verses about blessings and all that kind of stuff and say, you need to give to your church, because if you hear somebody say that, they need to have their doctrine squared away, because Malachi was not speaking to the church in any way, shape, or form at all okay the church can read malachi and they can benefit from it as it says in 2 timothy 3 16 but it is not doctrine for us it's something for our learning our understanding and taking in the proper context of the people of israel being led as a tutor by the law to bring them to christ that is the context it's all part of the replacement theology. replacement theology real punishment there real real bad twisting of the bible that's correct Okay, so we've got um, uh, Proverbs 18.11, and without taking this to unintended extremes, as I said, with the Word of Faith movement, and then if a preacher promises that you will reap a hundredfold, if you send him $100, don't waste your time. God is not, and I say this all the time, he is not a cosmic ATM. God is not that, okay? He tends to our needs, and he rewards each of us according to his wisdom not according to our greed. Further, it needs to be remembered that sowing bountifully is something that can only be determined by the individual in relation to what they already possess. If a millionaire sows $500, it really is not that much. In fact, it would be nothing compared to a cash-strapped blue-collar worker who gave the same amount. Just because it is the same amount, the proportion one uh, of one cannot truly be compared to the other. To the Proverbs again. We'll go to Proverbs 22 this time. And it says there in Proverbs 22 and verse 9. Proverbs 22, verse 9. I hope I got it right this time. It says, um, yes, he who sows iniquity will reap sorrow, and the rod of his anger will fail. Life application. You cannot sow unless you reap I should say that the other way around. You cannot reap unless you sow. One cannot reap a great amount unless they sow enough to produce a great amount. Let me uh, make a note here so I get that backwards. Boy, sometimes even my dyslexia comes out in my typing, okay? Um, this general principle applies in giving. All will be rewarded for their faithful sowing, but some of that reaping may not be realized in this life. If you are giving in order to receive you have missed the joy of giving, and the reward may not be what you hoped for. Okay, 9-7. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There you go. Okay, that's one of the text verses to remember if you are going to speak to your pastor at your church about no longer preaching tithing. You take that verse right there. So let each one of us give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. That pastor is violating scripture by telling you you must tithe. Everybody got that? That's because it says right there. Tithing is a mandatory giving. It, it's a set principle. Okay? If they say that, they are violating scripture. This is New Testament theology. Okay? I won't get into the whole tithing thing again, but please go to your church and ask your pastor, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And then give them the right verses Send them to the sermon I did on giving from uh, Numbers uh, 18, the 
priesthood. Uh, it's part two, the second sermon. Just give them the link to that and say, watch this, and then go with it. Okay, the law is fulfilled in Christ, and it is annulled. There is no longer a requirement to tithe in a New Testament church. Not only that, this verse is the most explicit one in all of Paul's writings concerning what to give and when. Only Galatians 6.6 6 adds anything more substantially for us to follow with the words, let him who is taught the word share in all good, uh, um, yeah, who is taught the word, that means the person who's being taught, share in all good things with him who teaches. Okay, those are the only two verses you're going to find that are really explicit in the New Testament. I'm talking about the New Covenant New Testament. All right, understanding this, we should take this verse to heart and carry it with us always. New Testament Christians are to each one give as he purposes in his heart. That's Paul's words. That is it. We are not to allow ourselves to be forced to tithe by a pastor who reinserts the law, which is now done away with. Run. Don't walk from there. We are also not to be coerced into giving apart from how our heart directs us willingly and freely. The word for purposes, the Greek word is proario. It is its only use in the New Testament, and it is used in its, this is Charles Ellicott, it is used in its full ethical significance as indicating not a passing impulse nor a vague wish, but a deliberate resolve deciding both on the end and on the means for its attainment, something only a person can do. Nobody can insert that into them, and nobody can tell them that. It's something only the individual can do. When we give, it is not to be as a passing fancy, under feelings of compulsion, nor in a manner which will later be stewed over. Instead, we are to give willingly, freely, and with a heart that is content that, the giving, that giving the gift was the right thing to do. So if in five years from now you're sitting in your church and you decide, I really hate this church and I hate my pastor, I've just come to just dislike it, and you leave, you should never say, I wish I hadn't given my money to that church all these years. That should not even be, should not even cross your mind. You just say, I'm tired of this guy. I put up with him. I tried to be a good congregant. He's bothered me to death and I'm leaving and just walk out. Don't say anything beyond that. Let your own remorses be left behind, okay? Um, where was I now? Yes, Paul continues in his thought by saying, not grudgingly or of necessity. The Greek word for grudgingly literally means from grief or out of sorrow. Rather than being coerced into parting with our money and later feeling remorse over having given, we're to be joyous that we have helped out in a way which blessed us while also blessing the recipient of the gift. It should be voluntary rather than out of necessity as well. If we give out of necessity, then it is less a gift and more of a need. Paul finishes this marvelous verse with the words, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, he introduces a word here that is only used this one time in the New Testament, hilaros, or cheerful. Our giving should be such that we are actually happy when we part with the money. We should say, we should be able to say, I worked this many hours to make that, and I'm so pleased that those hours were spent in order to give this gift. The verse we are looking at closely follows the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, from Proverbs chapter 22. The Hebrew version reads, let me give you what the Hebrew, because I don't have the Septuagint in front of me, but uh, let's see here, Proverbs, whoops, I went too far, Charlie. Proverbs 22, and it may be what I read a couple minutes ago. I think I might have read all this already once, but we'll read it again. Proverbs 22, verse 
8, yes, he who sows iniquity will reap sorrow and the rod of his anger will fail. He who has a generous eye will be blessed for he gives of his bread to the poor. The Hebrew version cited here is close enough to get a resemblance of Paul's words, but it is clear from him citing Proverbs elsewhere in this that he had recently been reading that book and it was fresh on his mind. Further, it is apparent that he had been reading not the Hebrew version, but the Greek version. Finally, as a point that this type of giving was even considered appropriate in the Old Testament, we read this in Exodus 25, verse 2. Great set of verses here. Had to be restrained. Yes, that's exactly it. 25, verse 2 says, uh, verse 20, well, it's, that comes a little later. Speak to the children of Israel that they may bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly and with his heart you shall take my offering. And then later they actually had to be restrained from giving. So there you go. Understanding that this offering was taken voluntarily from the people of Israel and that it was intended for the building of the tabernacle, it follows that our gifts for the building of the church should likewise be voluntary, not forced. Again, this precept is found in the building of Solomon's temple as well. That's found in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Let me take you there where it says 2, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and it says in verse 6, 1 Chronicles 29, 6, Then the leaders of the fathers' houses, leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of thousands and of hundreds, with the officers over the king's work, offered willingly. They gave for the work of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. This is the type of giving that is looked for in the New Testament believer. Let us take this to heart and not let the law be reinserted by mandating tithing, nor allow ourselves to be compelled to give against our will. Life application, take time today to memorize this verse and Galatians 6 verse 6. After that, Follow through with your giving in accord with those verses. Yes. At Grace, one morning, the Castros came to that church. Okay. And their boy was about 10. His dad gave him a bill. I don't know whether it was a dollar or five. But he lit up. Huh. I was on this end, and he was down at that end. And he couldn't wait till they got that oh, boy back to him. Wow. And he put that in with the biggest smile I Aww. ever saw. That was willingly giving. Yeah. So he's probably 17, 18, something now. So if he's watching this, oh, yeah. I, I remember his face. He was just beaming. That was a cheerful giver. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, that's and it's a good memory for you as well. I mean, the whole yeah. thing was good. Yeah. How nice. Okay, let's see here. Uh, we're nine eight. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at, at, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Okay. This verse explains verse 6, which said that he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. However, it is also qualified by verse 7, which said that we should give as our heart purposes and not grudgingly or of necessity. If we give in the right spirit and in a way which is intended to glorify God, as Paul says, God is able to make all grace abound toward you. This means that all good things that are necessary to fill up any void made from our giving will, in fact, be provided. There will be no lack. 
it is a note of assurance that people are not made poor by being generous. It doesn't happen. Instead, they will always have, they will always have, as Paul says, all sufficiency in all things. Okay. There's some people that have uh, uh, attended online in the church for a long time, and they have been unable to give anything for their own reasons. You know, I'm not going to get into any of the details. And finally, a job came their way, and he's able to help out the church now. And so, and I know the Lord is blessing them for it. But during the time that they didn't have a job, who would even think of saying, you know, you need to be giving to your church, whether it's here or whether it's some other church? Why would you do that? Why would any church do that to people? And yet that's what you have in many churches where they put pressure on people. They know they can't afford it. You know, they got a brand new baby and they say, well, you need to tithe anyway. The Lord's going to bless you if you tithe. They need to take care of that child and someday they'll be able to give. And when they give, they will not be poor in their giving. Okay, that's the way that we do things. All right. Um, okay, so uh, where was I? Um, yeah, they'll have sufficiency in all things. The word translated as sufficiency is only found here and in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. In that verse, Paul notes that godliness with contentment is great gain. Our sufficiency will ensure our contentment. But again, in that verse, Paul notes godliness. These verses of Paul cannot be separated from a connection to God. The, per the person who gives with the expectancy that they will profit off their giving is deluded. Giving is not intended to increase worldly wealth. Instead, it is intended to provide contentment in what one receives from the Lord, which will always provide all sufficiency. So much so that this, so much so is this, that Paul says that they may have an abundance for every good work. There will never be a lack for the intended good work which is on one's heart. Rather, God will provide a suitable amount to ensure that the need is met. These words are promises, and therefore we are being asked to trust that they are true when we give. But remember the key points. We are to give one willingly, two with a heart which acknowledges the Lord in our giving. If giving is self-directed, why would the Lord reward that? Why would he do it? Life application, name it and claim it preachers should be ignored. Sow it and grow it preachers should be ignored. These people will get rich at your expense. They have appealed to the greed of your own heart. Ignore them. Focus on the Lord, not on yourselves when you give. Nine-nine. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Good stuff. Paul returns to Scripture to make his point concerning his words of verses 6 through 8, but especially verse 6. Here we find a quote from Psalm 112, verse 9. Psalm 112 reviews the blessed status of a righteous man, and thus the words there show the cause and effect of his righteousness. In this portion of the psalm, it notes that he has dispersed abroad. The idea is that of a farmer sowing seeds. He carefully scatters his seed, tending to where each falls in order to bring about a harvest. When a righteous man gives, it is with a sense of care and purpose, not in a willy-nilly matter. But this doesn't mean to, just to people or places that will in turn directly bless him. Rather, he is even given to the poor, as Paul says. His open hand of seed is careful to ensure that those who could never repay him are the recipients of his kind heart. Think of Boaz when Ruth was gleaning the first day behind him and he told the cutters, just cut something and leave it behind and don't let 
you know, the men rebuke her or anything like that. He was very kind to her. Now, he got a benefit in the end. We know that. But that wasn't the intent, okay? He was taking care of this woman that was diligent out in the fields and was working very hard and wasn't asking for anything, wasn't bothering anybody. And he knew that this person had come back with Naomi and was taking care of her. And he was rewarding her for that. This follows through with verse 7, which said that each should give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, as it says, for God loves a cheerful giver. Such a man will reap a great harvest, not necessarily in more money, but in an eternal and blessed state. As the psalmist says, his righteousness endures for 10 minutes. No, it endures forever, forever. The only way this could come about is by having been blessed with eternal life. The fruit of sowing in this life is that of an eternal harvest, such as the blessed state of a righteous man. It should be noted, though, that deeds of righteousness are not in and of themselves meriting of heaven. Only a person who is in Christ will have those deeds counted towards his eternal state. The greatest giver on earth cannot buy heaven through his charity. All right? Only through Christ can eternal life be attained. Life application. Do we have time for one more? Yes, we do. Um, life application. God is aware of every seed you have sown, and he will reward you for those that were done in faith. Don't worry if no one sees your good deeds here on earth. God in heaven does, and he is pleased with them. Okay, 910. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Good stuff. In accord with verses 6 through 9, Paul now pronounces a hopeful blessing upon the promised seed which the Corinthians intend to sow. As they give, Paul desires that they will also receive harvest in return. Now may he is obviously speaking of the Lord, who is the source of all things. It is he who supplies seed to the sower. That's Paul's words there. The word for supplies here is epichor egeo, and it is used for the first time in Scripture. Charles Ellicott notes its unusual history. Originally, it expressed the act of one who undertook to defray the expenses of the chorus of a Greek theater. As this was an act of somewhat stately generosity, the verb got a wider range and was applied to any such act and was so transferred in like manner by the apostle, probably as far as we can trace, for the first time to divine bounty. So there you go. Paul, leaning on his understanding of the Greek cultures and traditions, uses this word in a new sense as he ascribes the supplying he speaks of directly to the creator from whom all things originally stem. He will use the word two more times in his epistles, and Peter will pick it up from him and use it twice as well. The phrase, seed to the sower, finds its roots in Isaiah 55. Let me take you there really quickly. Isaiah 55. Speaking of Isaiah, Sergio and Rhoda were down in the Dead Sea today doing a live stream while I was having lunch with the guests here, and so I missed it, but it'll be recorded, so you can watch it on... Uh, streaming and um they were down there because these certain flowers are blooming that happen only at certain times and they were getting footage of that and uh so um I, what was i thinking of oh isaiah 55 there was a couple sets of verses he was asking questions about from isaiah i think it was 34 and he says does this apply and he wanted to make sure that what he said was appropriate for the uh the uh, stream. But anyway, if you haven't seen it, go home and watch their live stream. I bet it's pretty wonderful. Okay, Isaiah 55, verse 10, for as the rains come down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, 
So my word, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Okay, in addition to such seed, it is the Lord who provides bread for food. The seed grows, it is harvested, and then it is turned into bread to feed man. Paul asks that such a blessing of prosperity from a seed, even to a full stomach, come upon the Corinthians with the petition that the Lord, his words, supply and multiply the seed you have sown. They have pronounced that they would give a gift, and Paul writes as if the gift has already been collected. In turn, for their promised faithfulness, his words beg for a return blessing upon them. However, the final words show that the return is not just a return of the same type which was sown. They are to invest money. But Paul asks that the Lord will increase the fruits of your righteousness. The words come from the Greek translation of Hosea 10 verse 12 and indicate spiritual blessings. It is the fruits of the righteousness and not necessarily the fruits of the seed that will be increased. Paul then is referring as much to heavenly rewards as he is referring to an earthly return on their investment. It would be inappropriate to think that by giving money that a sudden shower of money would come flooding back down on them. Rather, the rewards may come in this life or they may come at the time of our meeting with Christ at the judgment seat. But either way, they will come. The Lord will return all faithful sowing. Life application, when you give, do so with an open hand and without attaching conditions upon the gift. If you give in hopes of receiving back, then you have given with a wrong intention. Be content to share what you have. The Lord will return, reward you in his own way and in his own time. Okay, and seeing as how we're talking about giving, there, I usually say this a few times a year during the Sunday church, but I might as well say it during the uh, Thursday Bible study, is that there are people that have helped out this church, and we have never asked for anything for this church. One time I asked for people to write a letter concerning something happening in that church. Other than that, we've never asked for anything. And so those people that have helped out the church, it is more than appreciated. It is very, very appreciated, and you are to know that. And so uh, uh, I want to thank you personally for that. We're able to stay open because of that, and it means the world to me. So having said that, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the wonderful blessings you've given us, and you've promised us rewards in this life and in the life to come for being careful stewards of what you have given us, whether it's money or whether it's just a smile to somebody that needs one. So as long as we're doing it in faith, help us to continue to do that in faith and to be proper stewards of our time and our actions so that people will see it and they will respond favorably, whether it's joining a church, whether it's calling on Christ, or whether it's just simply understanding that Christians are not the enemies of the world, the way televangelists seem to make it. And Lord, we do pray for all the people we mentioned at the beginning of this service and anybody else that is, uh, uh, it was not mentioned that may be going through their own troubles or trials. And we certainly thank you for the blessing of having our guests tonight. And we would pray that you would get them up safely and off to uh, uh, Nebraska safely tomorrow. And Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for every good blessing that comes from your open hand of grace. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.